mental, emotional, physical, um, and intellectual. And when any one part of your being goes out of balance, then it makes everything in a, a state of friction. And I mean, friction is good in some ways, but it can also wear away and destroy. And so, Welcome to Bridging the Potential, Intergenerational Conversations That Change the World. This is Isabella Britton, founding member of the Living the Potential Network's Youth Advisory Council with a question for you. What happens when you bridge the experience, education, and expertise of an elder with the curiosity, energy, and innate wisdom of a youth? It is simple. Everyone grows and the world changes for the better. One conversation, one connection, one collaboration at a time. Today's podcast is no different. Renee Beth connected me with Annie Smith, who is an activist, professor, theater director, writer, and facilitator who is concerned about social justice and the integrity of our earth, as well as providing a future for us as a society. I think you will enjoy our conversation about engaging activism with indigenous wisdom. My favorite part of this podcast is when Annie Smith talks about how she combines activism with theater, two things I'm very passionate about, and the different ways to bring these issues to light and these issues that affect Indigenous communities as well as the world as a whole. Hello, this is Renee Beth Poindexter. I am founder of Living the Potential Network, and I am your host for today. Um, after I wrote the book, Living the Potential, Engaging the Wisdom of Our Youth to Save the World, I set out to find uh, and create spaces where people could hear what the youth have to say. And that's what this podcast is all about. I love these conversations where after listening to the youth's dreams and concerns, we connect them with an elder, a mentor, who has experience and wisdom to share and who is open to learning and receiving the innovative spirit of the youth. And this is reciprocal learning at its best. I always leave these conversations inspired and I think you will too. Today, I have two special guests. Um, our mentor for today is Annie Smith. And Annie, I know from her work with Antioch University and former, before that, the Self-Design Graduate Institute. Um, her passions are really learning community and theater performance. And these passions, which she'll talk more about today, have really led her to working with First Nations reserves on, on, on Vancouver Island. And she's, she's actually directing and touring with the Tricksters Theater, an Aboriginal theater company, uh, to isolated communities in British Columbia. Uh, she has directed community plays um, for the Grand Prairie's 100th anniversary. And she's participated in amazing conferences uh, throughout North America, especially related to the train of thought and performing Turtle Island most recently. Anyway, she's done a fair bit of writing too. You'll find, find some of her writing in published journals and she always, wherever she goes, she teaches and she learns and she builds community and she's found ways to use theater to actually facilitate an awakening of some sort. So Andy Smith, we're really grateful to have you with us today. And my other um, amazing guest is um, Isabella Britton. And Isabella comes to us from, she's 17 years old and comes to us from um, La Crosse, Wisconsin. And she is the founder and president of the Indigenous Peoples Club at her school. And she's also, get this, <laughs> at 17, the vice president of the feminist equity movement. She loves learning about cultures, and I think the conversation she'll be having with Annie today is just such a great match. I don't think you can get it any better than this. So we'll start with you, uh, Annie. I'd uh, love for you to start with, tell us a little bit about what your passions are. You, I mentioned a little bit, but your passions and what you're up to today related to those. Thank you very much for the introduction, Renee Beth. And it's a pleasure to be here with you, Isabella. Um, I 
right now, I, I think I'm feeling very passionate about the environment. And um, I'm living on Vancouver Island and I'm living in an area that is sort of the hub of many, many uh, salmon farms, Atlantic salmon farms. And having been aware for a few decades of the damage that is being done to the environment, to the wild salmon. And so that's one of the things that's foremost um, in my mind and wanting to be connected with other people who care about this and who are working to shift the status quo, uh, which is a government that is embroiled, or well, not embroiled, but locked into trade relationships globally, which is allowing the devastation of our own ecosystems here, which of course have a huge impact on the ecosystems everywhere else in the world. We're, we're not alone in this. Um, and so this is, because I'm living here and I moved here a year ago, this has become, uh, a primary concern. I'm also uh, working towards what I can do for my own um, conciliation with Indigenous people. And that has been through theater and through teaching theater, and particularly bringing awareness to non-Indigenous people of the work by Indigenous playwrights and artists. And um, many of whom I've met over the years through the work that I've done with Tricksters Theatre and um, just generally getting to know people <laughs> through different projects and conferences. Right, right. And yeah, so that's um, something that I'm pursuing um, over the last five years in particular, particularly with elders, with seniors, with people who are, are my age, who are... I think because probably our activist seeds started back when we were kids in the 60s, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and you sort of live through a lifetime of doing other things and suddenly you get to be the age of a senior and you go, hey, wait a minute, what have I done with my life? And what has been the impact of that? And what have I missed? And a lot of us are realizing what we've missed is building relationship with the indigenous people who have lived here forever. Right. And so I, I feel a real hunger in that. And I, I feel that that is something that I can bring, uh, that um, I can do without um, appropriating uh, because I know so many indigenous artists who are happy to participate and to bring themselves forward to do this intercultural relationship building. That's awesome. Well, you said you've just moved to Vancouver Island, but you've been, you're a Canadian, right? Yeah. Yeah. So your whole life and you're, and it's interesting because when you look at your life, when you think about your legacy and living your legacy, you know, some people want to leave a legacy. <laughs> I go, well, let's just live our legacy, shall we? So for you to be thinking about hmm, your background and what you say, you know, your three passions of, you know, of, um, Indigenous performance and participatory learning uh, through drama, you know, and then continuing to learn yourself, those three things. And where do you think you've got that? I mean, you know, this isn't new. This has been unfolding over your lifetime, right? And now you're moving into, okay, now what? When did you first get those um, early inclinations that your journey would be taking this form? Well, it, it goes back a long way because my mom, um, met a woman from the UK when I was a little girl and my mom and three or two other friends formed children's creative drama classes and this was new in Canada it, it was happening in Canada and probably in the U.S. as well uh, and they taught after school programs and of course I was a kid and I got dragged along and I was also part of other teachers meetings because I was a kid and hanging out in big ears and what I remember um, really clearly, it was a really clear moment for me, and I think I was maybe nine, and they were talking about the change they saw in children who, you know, they would come into the drama classes and they would be angry or they would be quiet or they wouldn't engage. And through 
creating drama together in the classroom, not necessarily performing for an audience, but just doing it together, just creative play. These kids started to change. And I remember listening to them talking about this and it really, it, it planted a seed in me. Uh, and so then when I started teaching children's creative drama, because you kind of follow into your mom's footsteps often, um, that was one of the things that I was really primed to be aware of and looking for. And so the roots go back to that early time in my life. Um, and seeing how people, when we come together for a creative project, it doesn't have to be drama. Um, it could be a choir, it can be a sports team, it can be a project in school, but when people come together and they completely buy into something that they want to create between themselves, then magic happens. And this is what I saw when I toured with Tricksters Theatre. We would bring plays into communities and the whole community would participate. Like we weren't actors performing a play for them. We would facilitate them performing for each other. And we saw the whole community shift because people saw each other in new ways mm -hmm. and they let go of the stereotypes and they let go of, oh, well, so-and-so has always done this to suddenly, oh my God, did you see so-and-so do that? And it just, it shifted everything. And that was what I wanted to explore for my doctoral research. It was like, right. so what happens? What's going on here? What happens when people perform together? Right, and then the way in which you do theater and you call it spectatorship, you know, like there's a, a way of involving people that are in the audience, mm -hmm. as opposed to being, you know, there to be entertained. There's something else going on as you're building community and the reason I'm so curious about this is uh, a quote I had done for research for my book that came from the Shoemaker Briefings um, from the Global Ecology College in uh, England, the Shoemaker College. It said, art leads science by 10 years, science leads business by 10 years, and business leads education by 10 years. So we think, well, if the artists are 30 years ahead, the creative people, or 30 years ahead of these systems called science, systems called business, systems called education, 30 years ahead, why don't we have the artists lead? <laughs> so I'm interested if you could say anything before we go into um, meeting with Isabella here about the way in which you use theater to open people up to build community and that connection to um, indigenous wisdom. Yeah, well, the indigenous connection is key for me. Um, because it was only, I mean, I lived in proximity, like side by side with Indigenous people and Indigenous communities, but it wasn't until I was hired to work for them, and they were my boss, that I received training uh, and began to understand the Indigenous worldview. Um, I hadn't ever been trained or, or been exposed to that. I um, mean, it was the, the mentorship of elders and the training that I received that opened up the, the way to see community, um, not as a system, but as a relationship, okay? And, and that's always what the struggle is because systems are systems and we need them to function um, in society, but it is the relationship with people that makes the difference. And so, you know, I, I'm one person and I can enter into relationship one-on-one -on -one, um, with other people. And that's where the magic happens. And if you can create a, a group of people, whether it's through a class or um, an audience, um, you, you can open that space, right? And, and as people, we, we want to be in relationship, not just with ourselves, but with, with our environment, with nature with our ancestors. And that's another thing that I have really learned from indigenous people is that our ancestors are with us and they are all around us. And what we do impacts them. And I think one of the most moving things that I heard was someone saying, 
an indigenous person that when, when the children speak the language, the ancestors are happy. Yeah, and, you know, I think of, of my ancestors and many I don't know because I'm adopted, um, but of my adopted ancestors that I do know, um, I feel them close to me all the time, right. especially my grandmother who I'm named for, you know? Aww. Yeah, and so that sense of belonging that we do belong and we belong in this continuum and, and um, that our ancestors are with us and that the future generations are with us too. So when ancestor, when the indigenous people talk about doing this for our children, they are with us now, right? right. They may not have come into being in this world, but they are with right. us now. Right. And so it, it just shifts everything. Yeah. Well, how perfect for Annie to meet Isabella, you know, yeah. Isabella, so grateful that you can be here today. Um, as I've said to you, because you are on our Youth Advisory Council and um, you are, you have the wisdom of a, I call you an old soul. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that Annie said that the biggest influence in her life to get her on her legacy that she's now living as her elder came from her mom. <laughs> and that's who I met first. I met your mom first. And then she told me about you. And I said, I want to meet this young woman, Isabella Britton. Thank you for being here today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you. Um, and then we'll go into some of the questions that, you know, you're, you're a leader, you know, you're 17 and a leader. How, how did that all start? What was your, when did you awaken to your passion of darn it? you know, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. Let's fix this. When did that all start? Yeah, well, I think it slowly started building up over the years. Um, I had a mom who was incredibly involved in our community and would like push me into speaking in front of groups. And I'd be like, mom, no. Um, <laughs> but so like over the years, it started building up. And then like, I started taking these courses, not really courses, but I would partake in justice circles where I got a really good foundation of how to be a leader. Um, and it, it really just empowered me and brought these ideas to life that I had always known were issues because I had a pretty awesome mom who taught me about them, but I never knew how to like use my strengths to help these issues. So then finally I got to about seventh grade and I, had enough we were learning a really racist terrible sexist homophobic book and I was like this is not right we should not be learning this and so then that's when I really the fire kind of lit under me and I was like I'm gonna do something about this I can't just sit anymore I can't just tell my mom about my issues and have her take care of them so I it really started with that book that I really became a leader, I guess, and took charge of my own life and my actions. Right. And so how did you feel about that? And did that compel you to do more of that? I, I felt really good about it. I think it had the outcome been different. The book was pulled from the school district, but had it been different, I would have been very sad and deferred, but it wasn't. So it really gave me this like sense of euphoria I guess I don't know how mm -hmm. else to describe mm -hmm. it. yeah stepping into my leadership role and actually gaining the momentum I couldn't stop it's like a it's like a drug kind of like yeah. once you get it you just you got to keep going right right awesome. it's like once you walk through that portal you can't walk back it's like okay so you have this sense of empowerment and then that leadership has taken you to form a club, you know, um, and get active in the, you know, you're in your senior year now. And so you're already forming your future based on your active participation. You know, you have, I know you were here in Portland looking at colleges and so you're on a path. And so busy as you are, you know, you work a job, you're doing school, you're last year. It's like, how does the Indigenous Peoples Club and um, the feminist work combine into who you are becoming what would you say about that um I think having the clubs and like that sense of community is really like boosting me up it's like giving me some ideas and I'm getting perspectives from other people so like all these little bits from all these 
really strong people who are part of the clubs I'm in really just kind of form who I am and the ideas that I'm passionate about. I, I like to call myself an introvert, but I really do thrive in a like strong community and that's what these clubs are. So having these clubs is really just making me a better person and giving me right. more perspectives than I never would have gotten. Exactly. Well, I would say you're demonstrating that what we talk about the 21st century thinking skills of communication, collaboration, problem solving, local connections, you know, global connections, like you're, you have a sense of purpose. Um, and that's probably guiding your learning uh, every step of the way, you know, because you're going to take a stand when it's not in alignment. So um, I've learned so much from you. I'm so grateful for our intergenerational learning space. But let's say after listening to Annie's um, introduction and the conversations you had with her in preparation for this podcast, I know you have some questions. Where should we start? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I think something you talked about was you were really passionate about the environment and climate change. And so I would just love to learn more. I know you talked about theater and I love this idea of using theater to bring these ideas. So like how can people in the world and our listeners come together to solve climate change and what are some ways we can share it with everyone because it's a really important topic in today's world. Mm. Well, I think theater and, and I'm not so much of performing plays in buildings, but thinking about how just our actions can be performative. Um, when you look at, at the protests and uh, see what people are doing in them, people are dressing up in costumes, people are wearing, are having signs and there are really interesting ways that groups can interact um, to be visible because theater makes you visible, right? And, and so, doing guerrilla theater. Um, so think of, of guerrilla warfare. We'll think of guerrilla theater. Um, a man named Augusta Boal, who passed away oh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, was from Brazil. And he started a whole movement called Theater of the Oppressed, which is built on Paula Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is a, a real cornerstone for social education um, around the world. And that's where the term spec spect actor comes from that you mentioned Renee Beth, um, that a, a person is a spectator and an actor at the same time. And so um, the idea is that you can, you can go in and do interventions. Like when you've got a club or a group of people who are, or friends who are already, you know, doing things together and you want to go out and do something, then you can create a theatrical intervention that will draw people's attention. Um, you know, so the idea of, of pouring oil on the flames to make them go higher. And if, if the, the intervention is to show that we need to put the fire out, but you keep dumping things on the fire that make it go higher, you know, you can actually physically do an intervention like that that's going to be really dramatic and draw people's attention to it and say, this is what we're doing. We're not putting out the fire, we're making it worse, right? And so that's just the, the kind of, of thing that a group of people can just, hey, let's do something, right? Or, you know, go and stage a protest in front of one of the banks that is funding um, oil and gas industry that is, you know, creating the, the emissions that are, are driving the CO2 in the air, which are affecting the weather, you know, like all of that is all connected, right? So um, anything theatrical, I think just draws attention and it gives you energy and it gives you that feeling of doing something together that is empowering. You know, because you were talking about clubs being a community, Isabella, and you know, that's, that's so true. It's so hard to do things when you're just by yourself. And and reaching out and being able to create something with other people brings you so much satisfaction, but it also brings hope and it brings energy and it keeps you going. Like your, your victory, you know, gave you the energy to keep going. And that's what we need. We need to build energy together. 
I'm just curious, um, Isabella, when you think about it, because you, you know, the activities that you're doing to solve more of the global solutions, like even with the Afghan, um, you know, refugee crisis, you're involved with that. So there's some cultural aspects of what the Afghan people have that they're not just people that need a handout. You know what I mean? And so the opportunity to create some sort of, you know, taking these ideas that um, Annie is sharing with you, it's like, hmm, how can we create activity where they're actively being and sharing something about their culture that will lift everybody's awareness to this is a gift that these people are here. We're not just here to give them a handout, they're here to co-create something. Um, and from that theater perspective, you know, I'm just, that's what showed up for me a little bit because I know a little bit about your background and how you want to get people involved in solving some problems in your community. So just wondering if anything comes to mind related to that. I think what you said is perfect. I mean, I'm a very theatrical person at nature. I love, not that plays and theatrical are like the same thing, but I love doing plays and I love getting my voice out there and acting and like being a part of something. There's just something so, like I said, euphoric about being with other people who are passionate about the same thing. So I think I love how you can connect theater and activism. I never, I guess, would have thought to do that. So I think there are so many ways, at least in the future that I know, like there's a way to do it. And yeah, it's pretty incredible. I think everybody can learn something from someone else, um, no matter where you're from or who you are. And it's so important that we share our voices. Right. I think one of the things that um, that's also related to the healing, like how does healing and theater and activism, that was one of the things that, hmm, I'm just curious, because there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. I love to go by the saying, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, but people are doing, if people knew better, they would do better. I, I hold an optimistic view for humanity, you know, but they don't know better. They need, they need leadership and they need, so how does, wasn't one of your questions, um, Isabella, related to healing and activism? related to how do they go together? I think it was one of the things that we had talked about earlier. <clears throat> um, the different, differentiating between healing and activism. Um, and how does that relate to climate change? I'm gonna throw that out to both of you because <laughs> I think you both have wisdom about it. What do you see, um, Annie, about healing and activism. Do they go hand in hand with climate change conversations? Um, I think that if there's always the larger goal of healing, because I mean, why do we do activism if it is not to bring healing? You know, I mean, so often it's easy to, to become fired up to go against something and we need to. We absolutely need to, but if that's all it is, then once you win something, then the, the winners become the new oppressors. And it's this, and this has happened all through human history, right? And, and this is the, the danger of the system because systems are systems and they self-perpetuate. And it's only through creating the relationships that can stand in defiance of the system and creating relationship. You can't build a strong relationship or a good relationship if you are ill. You know, you need, you need the healing as the larger goal. So, you know, it, it's like in, um, I can't think of the term, this is so embarrassing. In, in justice, in- um, Social injustice? No, in, in community healing. So when okay. somebody is, has committed a crime, if they can come back to the community 
and do something to repay. Oh, retribution or reconciliation. Right. Yeah. It's all connected. This yeah. is so silly. <laughs> Somebody who's listening to that go, all these women are talking about that. Why can't they get up the right yeah. term? Right. It's okay because words are, you know, placeholders <laughs> for our feeling and for an emotion, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that you, you want to bring healing. If you've done something wrong, you want to bring healing to yourself, but you want to bring healing to the person that you've wronged. And until you can go through that process, you, you can't build a relationship that is going to be strong and grow. And so when you hear stories of people who have, have done a, a criminal act and they go to the people or the person that they've harmed and they offer something, they offer themselves to, um, to help pay. It is a reparation. So it's Louise Erdrich, who is an amazing Indigenous author in the U.S., um, who is an incredible mentor. She wrote a story called La Rose, um, I think it published maybe five or six years ago. And it's about two families who are friends. And in one family, the father kills the son of the other family in a hunting accident. And it's so moving to me. And it was really hard to accept when I first was reading it. He offers his son to take the place of the little boy that he killed. And his son goes and lives with the other family. And it's very difficult and very awkward. And yet through this whole um, relationship, healing comes. Right. And so... It, that was an activist act, as far as I'm concerned, for one family to give their child to the family that they had taken the child away from. Mm. You know, that is not a simple thing to do. No. And yet it brought healing to those families and, and then in the larger context to their community. Right. You know, and I'm just so grateful that she wrote that book, you know, because it, it made me understand healing in a completely different way. Right. Yeah. The Rose. The Rose. The Rose. And the, yeah. And the author's Rose. name again is? Louise Erdrich. Okay. Louise Erdrich. I'll Erdrich. put that on my reading list. Yeah. And you recognize her. You've read something by her too, Isabella. Uh, she's amazing. I, I met her in person um, ooh, a long time ago. I was in fifth grade. So I don't know how long ago that was, but um, it she's such an incredible role model and i i loved her birch bark house series um but yeah like and another another um indigenous ojibwe woman having this successful career and i go we go to visit her birch bark books bookstore all the time and it's she's just such an incredible person and i learned so much from listening to her talks and like reading her books and just being in a space that she's been in is just such an incredible feeling. She's, she's amazing. I love her. That's yeah. awesome. Well, see a new portal for me to go through. And, and um, I really want to get in touch with my indigenous ancestry. And I know that's something that you brought up um, Annie about how important that is that you learned that you, when you went to work or, um, which which indigenous group was that that you went to work with? Um, I was working um, for the Atatsu First Nation on Vancouver Island, mm -hmm. uh, and they are part of the New Town of Tribal Council. So it was the New Town of Tribal Council that operated the human services training for everyone from fourteen communities right. on Vancouver Island, and we would get together uh, for training, and it, it was an incredible experience absolutely so um i'm just curious about your ancestry um isabella and how you're in touch with your ancestry and and there's some knowledge there that i know our community wants to learn from you heard it the other day when you were in a the youth advisory council meeting there so please teach us because we not we don't know this white privilege you know impact that you know is so unconscious and people want to know and they don't know and here annie's gone through some training and i don't i'm sure you have too because of your mom and your own ancestry so 
I think this relates to one of the questions that you wanted to talk about, you know, so let me help you bridge to what that is related to your ancestry and what you're learning. Yeah, well, I guess, so I'm Lukudere Ojibwe, but I also have white passing privilege. I'm very Norwegian. I'm in touch with all sides of my ancestry, I guess. Um, uh, and I like to take parts of what I learn about my Norwegian culture because I speak Norwegian. I, I have very Norwegian grandparents and I partake in that side as well. And I'm also Lukudere Ojibwe and my mom will teach us things and we're in a constant learning process ourselves. You'll never know everything there is to know about indigenous culture. There's so many different tribes, so many different peoples with so many different languages and cultures that it's, it's so hard. So you can have a basic understanding but it just, it splits in so many different directions that it's virtually impossible to learn it all. But I guess one of my questions for Annie was, I'll, I'm sure some of our listeners are trying to figure out how to be a white ally. So what was your journey, like learning about indigenous culture and how you came to accept the fact that you'll never know everything as well? And what are some barriers that you had to go through in this process? I know that was a lot, but answer what you can. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. Um, well, first off, I have to say that one of my first Indigenous teachers was when I was a little kid at summer camp in the States, in Washington State, and he was from Lummi, and I, I couldn't tell you his name or anything else about him, um, except that he taught us camp craft. Okay, so imagine a group of kids in the forest with an indigenous man and he was teaching us how to start fires and, um, you know, the relationship between the plants and all of that. And I think I was 10 and I just, I just sucked it up. As a matter of fact, it's the basis of everything that I've been able to do in the bush in my life is from that man and that experience because he just taught me to see the forest differently. Uh, and that was such a blessing. Uh, and then over my life, um, I've had indigenous teachers. Um, and one, actually, when you were talking about your experience in um, New Mexico, Renee Beth, I, a young man was a camp counselor and he was Navajo and he was in education and he was um, going to university to become a teacher, to go back and teach his community. Right, and that was another really powerful moment for me as a teenager of going, oh, I have a responsibility to my community. And that was not clear to me at all because I didn't know who my community was. He knew who's his community, but I didn't know my community because I was living in a different culture and we didn't understand community in the same way, right? So those are flags for me that led me as I, began to live beside indigenous people and then working in indigenous community, those seeds had already been planted in me and I could see them begin to open up. Um, when I started Trickster's Theater, which was a youth project with the Wache Friendship Centers. So that's an indigenous organization across Canada. And I think in the States there are friendship centers as well. Um, and they're mainly for um, indigenous people living in cities. So they're not people who are living in reservations. Um, and I did a, a project uh, using theater with um, the Wachee Friendship Center in Courtney on Vancouver Island. And then out of that grew the touring theater company Tricksters. And it was always a very mixed group of indigenous and non-indigenous people. And we toured all over British Columbia to many isolated communities. Our, our motto was, if you will bring us, we will come. And so that included float planes and um, trucks on ice roads in the winter and ferries, boats, you know, however we can, we would come. If you will bring us, we will come. Um, and it was such an amazing learning experience. But over time, um, and so this was in the early 2000s, um, Indigenous people were, it had been a long trajectory, but were becoming stronger and stronger and recognizing 
that they didn't need white people to do things for them, right? They needed to stand on their own two feet and do things for themselves. And that was a place where I had to go, okay, I need to step back out of this. This is not my place anymore to be leading Indigenous people. No, um, I'm a learner and I need to learn from Indigenous people. And so then as time has progressed in Canada, um, Indigenous people were demanding recognition and demanding um, that they be compensated for their experiences in the residential schools, which also existed in the States. Um, we called them residential schools in Canada. I think in the States they were called industrial schools um, where indigenous children were taken from their families. And I mean, basically kidnapped and taken and put in these schools and given an education, which basically meant doing the work. Uh, and, you know, many, and we're finding in Canada, many, many children died there and never returned to their families. They died of disease. They died of starvation. They died accidents uh, and of abuse. And so, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of children who never made it home. And so these stories were coming forward. And in 2015, leading up to 2015, Canada had gone through a whole process of truth and reconciliation, had a commission and Indigenous people stepped forward and told their stories. And it's brought Canada to a place of reckoning. And we're gonna be in this place of reckoning for a long time because there's still, I would say most non-Indigenous people still haven't come to terms with this, haven't accepted it. You know, um, there's a lot of denial and there's still a lot of division. And so, these are barriers in terms of, you know, I can't walk into a band office somewhere. And I mean, COVID has not helped. Okay, COVID has made things really, really difficult. Um, you know, I can't just walk in and expect people to go, oh, hi, can we help you? No, it's, oh, well, you're a white person, you're not welcome here. And they've got absolute justification <laughs> for saying that and doing that. So there's, there's a new tension in Canada where if you're non-Indigenous, you know, you, you're viewed with great suspicion. Well, what do they want from us? What are they coming to take away this time, right? And so this is a space where we have to do a lot of work. So I've shifted my work to working with non-Indigenous people to say, hey, we need to be coming to terms with this. And this is now what contemporary indigenous culture has, has brought to us that, that we can celebrate and that we can honor and that we can support, right? So it's been a big journey and times when it's been really hard because my heart is in a place of, you know, this land, this is where I was born. This is where I live. This is where my responsibility is. And so it's an incredibly rich place to be because the places where you're troubled, where it's hard work, those are always the good places. Those are the good places to be. If you're not in that struggle, then there's nothing at stake. And if there's nothing at stake, why bother, right? So yeah, and as good as I get you know, on in life, to <laughs> <laughs> to not be able to sit back and go, oh, everything's fine. I've got everything I want. No. <laughs> you know? mm. Yeah. And, and the leadership of the young, you know, this is what I see all the time is, is the young Indigenous activists, the young Indigenous artists, the young Indigenous leaders and educators. It's like, oh my God, they just blow me away. It, it's so amazing. And I just want to honor that. Right. So, you know what, I'm just thinking, um, Isabella, what I'm thinking about this, um, 
this idea of climate change and the indigenous wisdom that can help raise the consciousness. You know, there's so much wisdom there and how is that being heard? You know, to me, when I think about that with the social activism of what you're saying, Annie, about young people, you know, coming forward like Isabella and going, okay, you know, doesn't, I don't know. I don't know how to speak to it. I wanna just ask you, Isabella, what your thoughts are about what um, Annie just said about indigenous wisdom and them being suspect of the white people, yet we're all on this earth together. And that's one of the concerns that you have, Isabella. It's like, well, how do we, how do we share the wisdom in a way in which it's, we create a new space of alignment towards a shared objective? You know, love within oneself, love with another, love for the earth. Is there a pathway, do you see, that that could happen where we could partner with indigenous people and, and prove that we have good intent? Yeah, I think it's just so hard because there's so much trauma. It's hard to get over all of the trauma that's there. And so as hard as it is um, for white people who have always not been accepted wherever they are because they just kind of conquered places um, to start receiving some of that pushback themselves, I've seen a lot of people get incredibly hurt by that. And I'm really glad that Annie's had the experience where she's been able to get past it and be like, it's not my place. And I feel like in terms of indigenous wisdom, it's always been there. We're just so fed up with everything. We're shouting a little louder now and people are finally starting to pay attention. Um, And I guess in terms of working together, I think there are so many good hearted, good intentioned people out there that just need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Like you don't need to always speak for indigenous people. Um, They can speak for themselves. As Annie said, I completely agree with what you said in that terms, because we, we know it best. Um, You're, it's like an English class when you're writing a paper, they want the like firsthand accounts, not the secondhand accounts in order to like have really good sources. So you want to hear it directly from the indigenous people. And you may, as a white ally, be very like educated, but it's not your place. You need to kind of step back and look at the situation as a whole. And I think once that starts to happen and people start to accept that indigenous people want to speak for themselves, um, we do need help. Like we need everybody on our side as well, but we don't need people upstaging us so I think it just takes a little bit to step back and everybody needs to look at the world around them and not just themselves and their beliefs right so the climate change um climate healing is um have got some immediacy to it so I'm just curious um I wonder if Canada, I think it was one of your questions, is Canada a little further ahead than the US and that understanding? I don't even know if we have truth and reconciliation in the States. All I know is that to to imagine a talking circle, and I've been in them with indigenous elders from around North America, and we pulled together a a talking circle for uh, two days on climate change and what the indigenous elders um, felt needed to happen. You know, it just came through their conversation in the talking circle for two days. And that uh, is now lives on a site called Pull Together Now. And that was done like four years ago. And there was immediacy four years ago, right? So I'm just looking and seeing, and I wonder if there's, in our, my work right now with New Mexico, there's 23 um, tribes there and we're wanting to just have digital sovereignty where everybody has access to you know resources including broadband you know because the collaboration is so important right so i'm just wondering in that um canada um that was you know do we let me ask you isabella is there a truth and reconciliation Anything going on in the United States related to indigenous and you know the healing 
in getting more people aware of it? Is there anything like what Canada's doing here in the US? I don't know. Not that I know of. I know we have some incredible activists like Winona LaDuke um, who are working really hard to get something like that. Um, I think it's just a lot of awareness being raised. I don't know much if like the government's doing that, but I like tribes individually are trying to get the word out to everybody. So I think like individually, there are things happening with our activists and groups and clubs, but overall there's not like a big corporation doing stuff. Right, well, yeah. not all for the big corporation. Yeah, I think the organic, <laughs> the organic, uh, well, anyway, what would you suggest? I think that was one of your questions. Um, what is Canada doing right? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it, you know, it all comes down to location. Okay, so things organize around the land and the water. And so there is stuff for sure happening in the States, but I don't know all of them. One I can tell you about, and this is Canada and the States on the West Coast, um, because, well, in, in North America, things go north-south. I mean, you know, the border between Canada and the U.S. is such an artificial thing, especially in terms of Indigenous people, because the, the movements went north-south. And out on the West Coast, and Portland is part of this, Renee Beth, it, it's, we call ourselves Salmon Nation. Right. Right. And there is a lot happening right now, like this week coming, starting on Tuesday, I think. Salmon Nation has, has a festival called the Festival of What Works. And all these online sessions, and they are from Northern California to Alaska, indigenous and non-indigenous artists, organizations um, come together and, and do presentations. And it's everything from food sovereignty to the fisheries, you know, to climate change, to governance, uh, to agriculture, to um, business. Uh, it, it's an amazing event. And then I think of the work that Robin Wall Kimmerer has done in the States. And I mean, again, it's North-South. She's Great Lakes and her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, has had a huge impact in Canada as well as the US, right? And so, but it's very focused on her location of where she is. Uh, and so there, I think that there's probably a lot going on, but we're, you know, it's a big continent <laughs> and it's hard to, right. to know what's happening one place to the right. other. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, because there, there are things happening in pockets but it's very much based on the region, the land, the, the ecosystems that exist there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it feels like, um, well, with your Indigenous Peoples Club, Isabella, you know, it's like looking at this and then being a part of our work with Living the Potential Network. It's like, okay, what cause can we get involved in and who else cares about it? Um, and uh, I just feel like there's so much that we could this ties into social injustice too. I, I think it was um, one of our people um, on our youth advisory council that said, okay, the issues that concern the youth the most is climate issues, social injustice, and the breakdown of, you know, the capacity to, you know, evolve our consciousness in some way because the systems are not necessarily supporting that. And one of the, I think it was Sam Well who said, you know, those are all one thing. <laughs> You know, it's not. So the healing of, um, so it's almost the, like the healing of oneself. And we were talking a little bit about that. Mental health is such a huge issue that's become first and foremost as a result of the pandemic. It's become more and more noticeable, especially with our youth who um, are looking at what's our future look like. You know, and when I'm hearing from this conversation today and because of Isabella and her leadership is like youth have, and you're also Annie saying like a youth have a lot to offer. And what if there was this connection of 
bringing together intergenerational learning community to address what, what did you, what have you learned? What have you learned? And it's a circle that includes people of all colors and all heritage, you know, with the youth leading. Cause I feel that's, you know, intuitively call me naive or whatever, but I feel like people will listen to the youth instead of that political jargon, blah, 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 hierarchy, power over. It's like, stop that already. You know, <laughs> let's create the place for the youth voices to be heard. So I'm getting that this is pretty important. What do you think about that mental health? Is mental health an issue that needs to be addressed? Um, and what is activism and community and you know working together um, with the wisdom? How does that help heal us all? What are your thoughts about that? Whoever wants to answer first is fine with me. I'm, I'm kind of like, how does this all work together? I'm curious. Well, I think we can't heal the world as a whole until we know ourselves truly and are in a good space. Because I know there are days where if I'm not running at 100%, I know I'm not going to make any change. I will. So we have to really focus on ourselves and our beings first before we can try to fix everybody else. Because you can't give 50% like if you're only running at 50% and you give out 50%, then you're at 0% and you can't do anymore. So you really need to just take, like I said, take a step back. Everyone just needs to take a step back in this world and focus on themselves and then how we can solve everything. Because once everybody has a greater understanding of themselves, it's easier to connect with other people. So mental health and activism play hand in hand so well, because they just, you have to know yourself, basically. Mm, yeah. So I see and Annie, see what I'm saying about the old soul <laughs> speaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. I, it is. It really is. And, and I mean, I think too when you are in that place of of moving into adulthood then you're in a place of real questioning and, and wanting to know who you are and what is your purpose, right? And so it's, it's that, that is such a potent place in a person's life, you know? And I think we have points in our life, in our adult life, where we also have those moments where we go, oh my God, like I know the year I was 29 before I turned 30, oh, it was just awful. Uh, what have I done with my life? <laughs> you know, I could be 30. What have I done? <laughs> and, and it was, you know, another point in my life where I had to really come to terms with a whole lot of things. And, and I think that seniors are also in a place of, of doing that. You know, when you retire from work and suddenly you're okay, so what's next? And, and mental health I, I always think of the medicine wheel and this is one of the teachings that I was given and it's, you know, it's mental, emotional, physical, um, and intellectual. And when any one part of your being goes out of balance, then it makes everything in a, a state of friction. And I mean, friction is good in some ways, but it can also wear away and destroy. And so, you know, the, the, the whole of the person is held in the community. And, and so if, you're, if your mental health is suffering, then it's going to affect everything else. It all comes together. But you need, you need the spiritual, emotional, you need the mental, you need the physical. Um, we need all of that. Yes. And so trying to think in those terms, because I, I really have a lot of resistance to targeting and, and just, you know, saying, oh, well, they're, you know, they're mentally ill. Right. You know, it, it's not, it's not isolated. It's connected yeah, exactly. to everything yeah, exactly. else. Right. Exactly. You know, so like yeah. if, if you're not taking care of yourself physically, if you're not having good nutrition, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you don't have enough exercise, that affects your mental well-being. Right. Right. Um, 
you know, and, and if you're, and I mean, there are times we have seasons in our life where we can be really emotionally devastated. You know, someone dies who we're really close to, um, you lose a job, you, you, you move to a new location, you have to start a new school and it, you know, all of these things are major life stressors. And we also have to accept that we go through seasons of you may be depressed. That doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. It means mm-hmm. you're in a season that you need to live through and accept and move on. Right, exactly. So yeah. well said. And there's, you know, that's one of the practices of the medicine wheel. And um, there's so much of the integration of wisdom that I think could really help. I heard at some point that 2021 was a year of transparency, you know, like things would be seen that have been hidden, you know, and this pandemic has really brought forward um, some awareness of where the healing is needed. And, you know, Isabella, you're saying, let's like, let's take on our own, you know, capacity to heal oneself. And then in community, I'm getting from you, Annie, it's like, it happens, you know, it could be a club, it could be a group, it could be whatever. It's like, we don't have to do this alone and we don't need to target, oh, that's a mental health issue. It's like, there's a holistic whole being here. And I feel that's what the native people wanted us to know from the very beginning. And we're just now starting to ask what's wrong, you know, that creates an opening for maybe it could, Maybe there's a new practice I could bring into my life. If I slow down enough, what they say is, you know, slow is the new fast. You know, we have to slow down to catch our breath, to see what's most important in the time we're in. So, wow, this has been such a powerful conversation today. I just wish uh, so jam-packed with wisdom. I, I wonder what each of you are taking away from this conversation. You know, how has it affirmed, enlightened, or empowered you? Annie, have you captured anything today um, in oh, the yeah. reciprocal space? <laughs> what would you say you've caught today? That um, I, I just feel very hopeful. Um, being in community with the two of you in this space has brought me so much energy um, and hope and, and the wisdom that you have, Isabella, and, and what you are bringing in to your communities um, you know, that's really, really inspiring to me. Uh, so I thank you so much for sharing that and for the work that you do and, and will continue to do. Um, that, that just brings me so much hope. And, and I always talk about opening space. Well, you, you have open space for me. So thank you. And thank you, Renee Beth, for oh, you're so welcome. hosting this. Yeah. Well, Isabel, I'm wondering... Is there anything that's affirmed for you or empowering you or enlightening you as a result of this conversation today? Um, well, I'm, I'm also feeling very hopeful. I, I hope that like our listeners listening take a lot of Annie's wisdom because she's done a lot of great work in, in noticing yourself as well, like just as a person, how we can help everybody else. But I, and I'm, just, I'm feeling really grateful for that as well. I mean, we have a lot of work to do and with people like Annie and you, Renee, and everybody, like even taking the time to listen to this, it, it shows you're trying and we really need that. So I'm feeling very grateful and hopeful right now. That's awesome. Well, I love the cross pollination aspect. You know, a lot of what we do on living the potential is we trust our seeds that we bring and then we cultivate them and then the cross pollination and, Annie, your um, work in theater and, um, and the connection with activism. You know, I never really thought about the activism as being a form of theater, you know? And it's like, those of you that are listening to this, it's like, wow, I have a message. Who else cares about it? How can we, you know, activism can be educational and it can be inspiring. It doesn't have to be moving against something. It could be moving for something. And that's the energy of the youth. I believe they want to co-create a better world. And um, by being that, bringing your voice forward, empowering, and Isabella, you're doing such a fabulous job with your leadership and your passion. And I see that you um, 
I, I see a bright future. And I'm hoping that this mentorship between you and Annie continues. That's the whole point of living the potential is connecting people towards, hey, you care about the same things I care about. What about this project? What about that project? You know, I got some new book titles from today from Annie and um, yourself, Isabella. And I think this is wisdom we can bring into our community. So I can't wait to listen to this recording. And um, I wanna thank our listeners for tuning in today. I'm sure if you're like me, you're leaving inspiring, inspired and looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Time is precious. And remember, you are the gift. Bring you to life. And maybe as a result, I'm pretty much assured that there'll be hope and energy for others because you're holding that space and inviting others to do the same. Thank you so much.